This is the Insurance AUM Journal podcast. We are standing with you at the corner of insurance and asset management. My name is Stuart Foley, and today, Joe Eppers is in the house, CIO of Selective Insurance. Welcome, Joe. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, it's great to be here, and it's great to be in the house, and uh, presumably <laughs> on the hot seat. Oh, I love it, man. Today, we have a guest that doesn't talk to a whole lot of people, doesn't do a lot of interviews. So we're very glad to have you on, Joe, and we appreciate Rich Kaufman for getting us together. Yeah, well, it's great to be here. And uh, I've been uh, pretty shy over the years, but uh, look, I really enjoy your periodical and uh, of course, have a lot of respect for Rich. And so I thought I would join. That's good stuff. We appreciate that. So what is the toughest part about being in a CIO chair today for an insurance company? Yeah, that's, uh, you start with a hard question. So I think everything is really tough right now. As I look at the investment landscape and I look at the industry and, and the low yields and what that's doing to ROEs across our industry, it's, it's challenging. You know, our job is to try and be creative and find ways to mitigate some of that lower yield and doing it in thoughtful ways where we're not opening ourselves up to risk that we don't want to take. So I think it's probably the most challenging period in my career in the insurance space. We're trying to be careful. We're trying to tread lightly here and uh, do what we can. So with the markets today, and I look at this and see the same thing you do, right? Is there anywhere that you see what I would refer to as measurable value? Yeah, I think it depends on where, you know, how you define value or what you're measuring value relative to. So, you know, when we think about value, we think about it relative to traditional core fixed income, which is probably like many insurers, that's our primary asset class where most of our assets are. And so there are some things that are attractive relative to traditional core fixed income. And I think in particular, you know, as I think about really three ways in which we can add income or or take on risk. One is through duration, the other is credit, and the third lever is liquidity. And I think that's the area that we're the most keen to exploit over the course of time, which we've been doing for the last couple of years or so, but really continuing that theme of taking more liquidity risk because the public markets are just so tight in terms of credit spreads and yields being low that you're really not getting paid that much or compensated that much for really for duration risk or for credit risk. And so where we can take liquidity risk in areas of the market and corporates or commercial mortgage loans, or even in alternatives, those are the areas that we're we're looking to exploit. So in that answer, you said traditional fixed income, right? So you and I have been in this business long enough to know that wasn't that many years ago that an investment grade core bond portfolio was the predominant asset class, an overwhelming majority asset class, and largely driven by regulation, right? And capital charges of those assets, the entire regulatory regime that's really focused on default risk, right? That's really the core of it. Right. If that regulatory regime were different, How big of a shift do you think there is or is there a shift away from traditional core bonds? I know we've seen it. What's the regulatory environment's impact on that decision? Look, I think it certainly weighs in the calculus of determining 
how much risk you want to take and where you want to take it. And it's certainly something we're aware of. As a PNC insurance company, we do look at capital. We do look at the regulatory environment and the regime. We care about RBC, but we try not to let it get too much in the way of how we make decisions. You know, perfect example is, you know, as I said earlier about taking liquidity risk. That's not really factored into the regulatory regime other than in alternatives. So if I can own a private credit, a private investment grade placement bond at a similar duration, similar yield as a public bond and pick up 50 basis points in additional yield or spread, that's really attractive whether you're thinking about it from a regulatory framework or just from a pure economic standpoint. And that private bond is actually even more attractive on a, on a fundamental basis if you consider the fact that you're getting covenants, you're getting structure in many cases, and you're getting compensated for that illiquidity risk. So I think most insurance companies are starting to think differently and look at their portfolio differently, not so much because of what's going on on the regulatory side, but more about just the opportunity set. And I also believe that you know liquidity is something that we as an industry have probably overvalued for quite some time. And I think if you need liquidity as an insurance company, you probably have a bigger problem. And when you do need liquidity, it's typically not there. So as an example, last year at this time, you know, if one needed liquidity to de-risk their portfolio or to meet operating needs, you were going to pay a heavy price for that. And so I think people are starting to come around to the conclusion of, hey, I can take more liquidity risk, whether that's in privates or in alternatives or other areas of the market and get paid appropriately for that illiquidity risk. And as a result of the margin, I don't need to own as much traditional down the fairway core fixed income, which is typically high-grade corporates, high-grade munis, and cards and autos within structured product. It's a really good point. I think when you start talking about risk mitigation and when you do see market dislocations, it's like, do those traditional ways of looking at risk mitigation work? Right. Or does it desert you at the time you need it most? It's interesting. You know, we're talking about duration risk, credit risk and liquidity risk. But there's, of course, a whole myriad of other ways of looking at risk. Is there anything that you think is particularly mispriced one way or the other? Well, not to seem perfect, but it feels like everything is mispriced, um, just given where risk free rates are at. And so, you know, if you discount any any cash flow based on today's risk-free rates, it feels, you know, everything feels quite expensive as a result. Look, over the next couple of years, I think we're going to be in this low kind of return, low risk-free environment. And that's primarily a result of what the Fed's, the Fed's efforts and fiscal deficits. And I think if I had to look out over the next year or two, you know, I'm not too worried about where, you know, about risk. But where I get more concerned is beyond the next couple, three years and really trying to figure out how does this experiment that we're in kind of come to an end or evolve and really trying to understand how the Fed extricates themselves from this grand experiment. And we saw in 18, 2018, they you know really struggled with that. And we saw what happened to risk markets. And I fear that we may have a similar problem in the next few years when the Fed begins talking about tapering or tightening and and their messaging begins to change. So I I worry more about that period of time. You make a really good point that, you know, in 2018, at the end of it, even though the Fed 
telegraphed their move repeatedly. Yeah. It sure didn't help the market from, you know, getting the shakes after the actual event. That's right. It's, it's like a vicious cycle, right? So the Fed eases, everybody puts risk on, the Fed begins a signal tightening, people get more nervous, the Fed begins tightening, people begin to take risk off, that causes problems in the economy, the Fed then has to either pause or uh, re-stimulate. And so you're in this, I feel like the Fed is in this corner that's going to be really hard to get out of uh, longer term. So when you see a backup in the 10-year note, like we've seen, pretty aggressive backup, particularly in relative terms in particular, right? When you go from 80 basis points back to 150 basis points or whatever it was, is that a head fake in your mind? Or do you think rates trend higher from here? Or are we going back where we were in terms of the lows? Boy, I, I wish I knew. <laughs> Me too. I'd, I'd stop doing podcasts and just trade the 10-year note futures. It'd be perfect. <laughs> yeah, in all seriousness, I really, I really don't have a strong view either way. I, I, you know, I read the arguments on both sides of you know the coming wave of inflation and as a result higher interest rates, and then I you know read the other argument, which is around these secular forces that have been at work for the last thirty years to keep interest rates low, and I think both sides make strong arguments. And so I really don't know. I'm honestly though, I'm cheering for higher rates. I think we need that as an industry. We need that as a, whether it's the insurance industry or the pension world, higher interest rates, as long as they get there in a slow and gradual way, I think are going to be good for us. But I have no idea what the future is going to look like for uh, the direction and level of rates. There's been some pretty big transactions recently where folks are selling their life blocks to PE firms or acquisition firms. Yeah. Because they have a broader set of more arrows in their investment quiver, if you will. Does that continue in your mind? Does that sort of transaction where these folks can get permanent capital, do you think you're going to see more of that? Or do you think that mitigates if rates start to, and what a bond geek, like me, a bond geek, rates going up is not good, right? <laughs> but in this environment, we need it. So what do you think there? Well, I think it depends on the, partly on the supply. So are companies who are unloading their pensions to these insurance companies who are buying them, are, are they going to continue to do that? And I think that trend will continue. I think companies want that liability off their balance sheet. And as they become more well-funded, that'll be continue to be a good option for those companies who want to remove that. And I think on the other side, in terms of insurance companies who are in this space and acquiring these, these large blocks, I do think that will continue. I think, you know, these business models have been created to create transactions in the market. And we've seen them, you know, in our seat here, and we're a property casualty company, but we've seen deals in the market and we've participated in them as well that were structured for these life and annuity companies that you wouldn't have seen five, 10 years ago. And so there's a lot of creativity amongst these companies to create flow, to create product to meet that duration tenor and to meet that spread need to capture that business and be able to price it. So I, I think it's going to continue. That's interesting that you're seeing those deals. So you mentioned earlier, you know, going down on liquidity. What do you see as the future for public versus private markets, given where fund flows have been going, not today, but for a little bit here? How do you see those two markets going forward? 
Yeah, I think at least in our market in the insurance space, I think you're going to continue to see a push to privates. And I think that's really driven by where the public is, public yields and public spreads are. I think as long as those continue to stay low, that's going to naturally drive our industry to want to take more liquidity risk. I think today with you know reinvestment rates with a one handle or sub two on high grade corporates, people are going to continue to be incented to, to take liquidity risk in different areas of the market. So it really depends on where the public markets go. But if the public markets continue to stay low, then I think the drive to privates is going to continue pretty aggressively. We hadn't talked about this, but we had a, a conversation with Nick Martowski last week, and it was really focused on the use of equities by insurance companies. What's your view of equities in a property and casualty setting? Look, there's certainly a place for them in an asset allocation. We have a small allocation of public equities. We have a bigger allocation to private equity. And just in terms of how we think about public equities, uh, as an example today, I think even though the markets are trading at 20, 22 times forward earnings, which feels really rich here, there are areas of the market that I think there are values. So whether it's value stocks, and those have done really well, but I think the underperformance of that of value stocks over the last 20 years has been significant. So there's probably more room to go there. And the starting valuation is just a lot lower than kind of growth stocks in general. And then dividend stocks. I'm a big fan of dividend stocks. We started buying dividend stocks last year at this time. And you're getting 4% plus yields at the time. Today, you're getting 3% plus yields. You know, I can't really replicate that anywhere in core fixed income. And so buying that dividend and having the upside option of owning that as an equity, I think is very attractive for us and for others who like income and also like the upside. So let's turn back the clock to last year. Pretty tumultuous, obviously COVID driven, a lot of it, but not solely. What were your takeaways from last year? You know, as I think back on the lessons and experience of last year, obviously it was very unique in my career, probably most careers. You know, you think about the 08, 09 crisis, and that tended to unfold over a longer period of time. I think, you know, the thing that I am really proud of from last year is just how my team and how our managers kind of responded to the events. And really what I think made it also a, while it was quite a stressful environment, what made it in hindsight feel better, and I think the outcome in terms of the actions we took were better, was just the strong governance that we had going in and working with our management investment committee, you know, really beginning in late February and through into the summer, having, you know, many cases, multiple meetings per week to talk about the portfolio, to talk about what was troubling, to talk about opportunities and where we could take risk. Also just our relationship with some of our internal partners within enterprise risk and really doing a lot of modeling on the portfolio to understand how the portfolio was reacting and whether we could take more risk. And that allowed us to eventually take more risk, you know, coming out of that period, which, you know, set us up well for the second half of the year and into this year. So I think as stressful as that period was, as I look back on it, I'm quite pleased and uh, very proud of 
how we as a team and as a company handled it. We didn't sell anything and where we could and where it made sense, we decided to add risk. And I think ultimately that made for a much better outcome as I sit here and look back today. Yeah, it's really interesting. The risk management and governance protocols really come into play at that point, right? That's when you need to make sure your seatbelt was on. Can you expand a little bit on how you model the investment portfolio? Is that done internally? Is that external combination? How are you accomplishing that risk modeling? Yeah. So we look at the risk in the portfolio under a number of different kind of models and methodologies. But I would say that, you know, if you talk to our enterprise risk folks, they have their model, which is an economic scenario generator that's more of a stochastic analysis in terms of how they look at and proxy the portfolio. And then internally on the investment team, we have BlackRock Solutions, which allows us to look down at a lot of detail on where the risk is in the portfolio, whether it's duration, credit, sector, issuer, all those things allow us to have a a pretty wide lens across the portfolio, which kept us well-informed of what was going on during that period. And then also really allowed us to have better, broader conversations with our outside managers on the risks they were taking and the risks that were in the portfolio, you know, obvious sectors that were more tied to COVID risk, whether it's debt tied to leisure and hospitality or energy or CMBS or other areas of the portfolio that were more impacted by COVID. Those tools really allowed us to stay informed on what was going on in the portfolio and make sure our portfolio could withstand. And you bring up a good point. People in the industry know, but people outside the industry, I don't think always know, that managing money for an insurance company involves managing a very substantial investment portfolio inside the belly of an operating entity. Right. Right. You're not making decisions in a vacuum. If you take a capital hit, that can impact the ability of the entity to write business. Right. And so it adds a not one layer of complexity, but many and which is why I think that insurance asset management is underrated for its complexity. I couldn't agree more. I think, in fact, one of the things that came out of a lot of the work we did last year in understanding our risk profile is with the drop in rates that we've seen, and I think you're going to see this across the industry, is the risk in company portfolios is elevated more so probably than it's ever been. And that's primarily because With interest rates being as low as they are, you're not, we as an industry are not getting the benefit of duration that we once did in times of stress. And so I haven't heard many of my peers or any other industry participants talking about, and you tend to see this in VAR or you tend to see this in scenario analyses. And I really haven't heard anyone kind of talking about that, but I got to believe that's going to be a topic of conversation this year as people think about their asset allocation and think about their risk positioning and the outcome of just having lower interest rates and what that means to people's ability to put more risk on. So, okay, this is my final question and it's my favorite. So here it is. It is your graduation day of undergraduate school. You are looking good. Despite The festivities that may have occurred the night before, you're looking bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in your robe and your cap and gown. There you are. And 
you're in there and you're waiting patiently. And the way that this usually goes is you have to walk up the stairs and then they hold you. Then they announce your name. The crowd goes crazy. And you walk over to the university president and he or she reaches out their hand, shakes your hand, hands you your diploma. You get a nice little picture, right? You walk off and you raise your hand. There you go. Walk down the stairs and you run into... Joe Eppers today, right? What do you tell your 21-year-old self? First of all, that's a really hard question because I'm not sure what I would tell my 22-year-old self, except that it's going to be okay. That I think, and I remember this coming out of college, and I'm hearing this from, you know, some of my kids who are in college that there's a lot of anxiety and, and concern about, you know, what am I going to do? What am I here for? What's my career? And you just can't have all the answers when you're 22 years old. And you can't plan your life and your career absent graduating and becoming a doctor or a lawyer or certain lines of profession. I think, generally speaking, most of us don't know what the future holds and what we're going to be happy doing in the, you know, down the road. And if you'd have told me 30 years ago when I graduated college that I'd be where I'm at today, there's no way I would have been able to see a path to get me there. And so you just can't predict the future. And then I think as a result, what I would tell myself is, you know, learn as much as you can, take a chance, network and build relationships and put yourself in a position so that as opportunities come along, because they always do, as do challenges along the way, it's going to make you more prepared for finding that ultimate place that you are going to be the happiest in terms of a career. So that's what I would tell myself. And interesting, I just heard my wife giving similar advice to my son last night on the phone, <laughs> who's away at college. So I think that would resonate with me at that age. That's good advice. Really, really good advice. Joe, thanks for being on. Joe Eppers, CIO of a Selective Insurance. Joe, thanks for joining us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Appreciate your time, Stu. Absolutely. If you have ideas for podcasts, we want to hear them. So please email us at podcast at insuranceaum.com. If you like us, please tell your friends. You can follow us on all the major platforms. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the Insurance AUM Journal Podcast. Podcast.